one uh, way doesn't work for everyone, so now we're getting very creative in this field. There's many ways you can help someone. Hi everyone, bienvenidos a Estoy Aquí. I'm your host, Catherine Borgen. And Catherine Castro. Bringing your bi-weekly dose of spice. Happy Women's History Month, B. How's this month been for you? Dude, the month just started, but it's been great so far. Really unwinding from February, because God knows that was a shit show. But Girl, tell me about it. <laughs> but March is going great so far. Lots of events, so many things to be excited about, especially it being History Month. But speaking of Women's History Month, you actually been meeting up with friends and colleagues getting shit done in the city. You want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yes, we are so excited to continue celebrating amazing women making strides, making history, and just doing groundbreaking things within our communities. In this episode, we talked to two Latinx ladies doing this and so much more within our Latinx communities. KB interviews Ana Sierra, a licensed professional counselor who works mostly with first-generation adults in the Latinx community, and Evelyn, a mental health therapist licensed in Maryland who works with the youth and adolescents. Check it out, y'all. Well, thank you for taking the time to come. I'm really excited to talk to you both about what you do and why it's important and just kind of highlight the amazing work that you do within our Latinx communities. I guess to start, I'd love to hear what do you do? Hi, my name is Evelyn Jimenez and I work more with youth. Right now, I'm currently working more with uh, elementary, middle school age children. Um, and I have a few adults. So I have it as... Um, you know, working with depression, anxiety, self-harm, those sorts of issues. Ana Sierra, and um, I have a private practice in Washington, D.C., uh, Ana Sierra Counseling Consejería. Um, and I work mostly with uh, first-generation immigrant community uh, and um, therapy for la- our Latinx community in the D.C. area. Yeah, it's amazing. Are there any interesting projects you've both been working on lately? I'm working on getting my certification in play therapy. Yes! <laughs> get it. You know, I want to uh, specialize in that and get closer to children, how to communicate with them, help them grow. Uh, not many children can communicate verbally, especially because uh, young children don't have the vocabulary we have. Mm-hmm. And play is a less intimidating way to confront some issues that... Uh, adults can confront children can't really confront though so um i'm excited to grow in that that's amazing i've never heard of play therapy i just recently learned about art therapy yeah there's many different uh modalities there's art therapy dance therapy i think there's drama therapy there's even uh trauma-informed yoga so there's one uh, way doesn't work for everyone, so now we're getting very creative in this field. There's many ways you can help someone. Fascinating. Yeah. Wow. And within uh, my practice, we are um, expanding a little bit with doing a little bit more coaching for clinicians of color, uh, bilingual, um, Latino, Latinx uh, clinicians of color to um, start their own private practice. The the process is scary. It's a, it's a lot of work, but I think it's um it's a huge need out there, mm-hmm. and uh, that's one of the projects within the private practice. 
espera, espera, espera. I've got to repeat that. One way doesn't work for everyone. We kind of touched on this within the art therapy slash coming out episode. And I love how this is a reoccurring theme. We're all individuals. Oh, yeah. Both of these ladies cater to different audiences in the Latinx community. Dude, I know. And I love how they're offering the tools to train clinicians of color because Lord knows we need to see more people like ourselves helping us maneuver through life. Yes. I mean, I've even really postponed going to therapy until I find someone who not only I like, but can relate to me on a cultural level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty crucial. But okay, okay, okay. Let's get back to the thick of it and understand why it's important and why representation is important through their lens. Both of you being Latinx and women of color in this field, like, how do you see representation in in the Latinx community when it comes to therapy and why is it important? When I see clients, what the first thing that I hear from them, and that's because I worked in Northern Virginia for many years, they say to me, oh my gosh, thank God you're Latina. Because mm-hmm. um, you understand my culture, you understand this. And that's not to say that our clinicians couldn't become more aware and culturally competent, but to say that because they see what you look like, they immediately identify with you and, and know that they can talk to you about things that might sound weird <laughs> to others, like spiritual things, mm-hmm. beliefs about stuff, mm-hmm. family stuff, and it's not weird to you because you understand it. You know, you live within the community as well. Yeah, it's definitely important, um, especially if they're not bilingual themselves. If they don't speak English, um, it's very hard for them to connect with uh, um, English-speaking-only therapists because then now you have to bring in a, a third party, someone to interpret, and then there's things that get lost. If you're speaking to someone in their native tongue, you're able to connect with who they are, whereas if you're just trying to... Um, speak to them and they need to uh, code the language it's gonna like interfere with their processing and counseling I agree because now they have to think about okay what does that word mean mm-hmm. and now you're um, you're in a way I think it's delaying how much they process so they're working more from the brain instead of healing from the heart that's mm-hmm. how I see it so I think if you have someone who understands you speaks your language it's much more helpful yeah, and there's research on that. There's it's called language switching therapy. Mm-hmm. So if a person, even for people who are bilingual, they um, if you speak about the trauma, let's say in English, and um, their native tongue is Spanish, mm-hmm. and they talk to you about let's say sexual abuse that they've experienced in English. As a therapist, you know that they're covering their feelings. You know they're having they're guarded about it because the experience is encoded in Spanish in the brain. In, in, in the Broca's area. So then, like, when you speak to them, when you get uh, uh, one of your clients who is bilingual to speak to you in their native tongue, whatever that is, if it was English or Spanish, you know that you're processing that trauma from way, way, way within, like Evelyn was saying. It's, it's, it's just the work with the brain and how the brain works. Do you feel that there's any benefit in seeking mental health guidance from someone who you more closely identify with culturally and in the language as well? Um, definitely, I think while well, you're going in, um, having this view that someone gets you, mm-hmm. especially if someone has a similar background, as a client, you might feel a little safer mm-hmm. to share things that maybe you aren't able to share with someone that you're not really sure if they would understand your background. But this is not to say that you can't go and work with someone that's from with a therapist. 
uh, that's not from a different culture. Mm-hmm. As long as the person is trained um, and culturally competent and open to you, healing can happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, again, if you only speak Spanish and then you have to bring another person in, I think it's not as beneficial. Yeah, and, and I think also depends on where the client is at. Clients mm-hmm. can seek out Spanish-speaking therapists because they want that understanding from someone that looks like them. Mm-hmm. But then also, you know, Latinx clients could be looking for non-Spanish, you know, mm-hmm. clients because they have some trauma that they could be, they could have experienced from their own culture, their own family, their own people that they don't feel safe yet. So I think it's just whatever people feel comfortable with. But any therapist could be trained to work with mm-hmm. many cultures. That's true. Yeah. I guess to um, go with that, do you feel like that being like Latinx helps you open up relationships with clients of color? Yeah, I think that the first question I get from clients is, where are you from? Yeah. yeah. Or, or, or from, like, older yeah. Latinx. I'm Ta casada. Laura, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it's uh, a little different. Um, with some, it's uh, definitely, like, especially the younger kids who are second generation, they connect mm-hmm. with me more. Mm-hmm. Whereas older um, Spanish-speaking individuals might... I mean, like, well, you look young. Um, mm. Your your Spanish sounds a little funny, so I do get judged. But um, because there are uh, sometimes they don't have uh, a connection to many Spanish speaking therapists, and I'm the only one they can see in that moment. So they learn to um, be okay with it, or um, like it ends up working because. If I let them know more about my background and share a little bit about how I connect, um, it tends to build that relationship more. Mm-hmm. And now they're like, okay, well, you kind of, you do connect with us, even if your Spanish is a little different. Yeah. There are not many of us, um, let people that speak Spanish, that can do therapy in the D.C. area. There's a growing need. Um, mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why, you know, um, working on that, helping and seeing the other clinicians, encouraging them to actually do that and get their own practice going and start doing that to meet the need. It's it's a lot of need out there. That's amazing. No, it's definitely needed. And how do you find the equality to mental health access within the Latinx community? Do you find that there's some sort of gap or like an inequality issue with people of color? Going to a workshop, uh, a lot of the concerns that... um, the people there expressed were that they didn't know how to go about seeking the services. The services are out there. It's just they're like, well, how do you do this? They're like, mm-hmm. do you call your insurance company? Um, and what if you're undocumented? So there's always mm-hmm. that fear. What do I do? Will, will they report me? Um, so I think them having the information and being educated on how to is more important. Uh, but there's always help out there. And Annika speak more to that. Yeah, and then when they when someone is already ready to get there, to find that therapist, to find that help, you find you know that many organizations that are low cost have long waiting lists, mm-hmm. and they um, and I know our you know our culture we want to have things done like if we want to call today we want an appointment by tomorrow, <laughs> but in yeah. these agencies you may find that you have to wait three months, and then that discourages the people that are already in that moment to make that appointment because um, they're saturated with the need and yeah. That so. is right because I'm one of two 
I'm actually one full-time um, employee at my agency. Wow. And I'm in the school. So then when um, the Latinx uh, clients call to make an appointment, they're, they may be put on a waiting list. Or, um, or they might have to see an intern. Yeah, like all of the um, Spanish-speaking therapists that are at our agency are already fully booked. Because there's so, there's so much need, but not enough. Yeah. Therapist. And I think that's been my career so far. Last 15 yeah. years, always been overbooked, overbooked, and always had, whenever I end a client or a family, then there's another three waiting. So it sounds like there definitely needs to be more of us, like mm-hmm. more Latinx people getting into the field to pro- be able to provide the services. I'd love to hear your stories and how you ended up in the field that you're in now. <laughs> my personal story was that I, I would say that I was a big... Uh, emotional support to my family growing up. I would often listen to my mother's stories, their uh, stories of her upbringing, the trauma, why she came to this country. And then I I guess I got used to hearing those stories. And, and now that I look back on it, uh, having gone through my own therapy, I'm like, wow, I was so young to take on so much. Um, and I learned how to manage her emotions and I learned how to be the one to help everyone else in the family. That is kind of fell into this field and then I took AP in high school and I did great and I'm like oh maybe I should get paid for this because of my family I ended up yeah. in this field I wanted to help other people I'm like well what, why is she having night terrors what does that mean how do I help people that are going through emotional pain and and here I am yeah <laughs> I think um one of the things that happen is in this field we all come to this field because we've known pain and we understand it and we want to avoid that pain for other people we want to make it better for other people um so when I started actually um when I got here at 14 I was getting a lot of um I was feeling like I had a lot of barriers to even going to college you know my English is not good enough my guidance counselor told me I couldn't get into college. Oh my God. Because, <laughs> because uh, um, this is a guidance counselor. <laughs> Jesus. And she said that I just, my English wasn't good enough. And, um, but failed to see that my grades were pretty great. You know, I made the honor roll many times, you know, during the years that I was there in high school. But like, so I felt like this is not fair. For me to be feel this to feel this way, I feel like a lot of other kids were getting discouraged quicker. Mm-hmm. I had thank thank God I had the support of my family and my parents who were like, you can st- you can do it, you can do it, we'll support you. But I feel like I went into college thinking I'm gonna change politics, I'm gonna become <laughs> a politician. <laughs> that was my first choice, and uh, and I uh, went into an internship and I realized working in DC I didn't like it too much I'm like mm-hmm. I think that I don't have the skin to do politics <laughs> so I went into psychology because I'm like this is still not fair if this is happening to me there's hundreds of other little Latinas who are just getting here with a broken English that are being told you're not good enough and I didn't want that to happen to others and I wanted to be the person to tell those girls you can still do it. Look, we, I've done it. You've done it. You, because I, I had that support. I saw someone else in a high position. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. There's a woman from Colombia in, like, a big position. I can do this, you know. So I know the 
meaning of representation, you know, how that affects how you make decisions. Yeah. What needs to be done to encourage Latinx people to get into this field and kind of really raise awareness to understand that there's a huge need? Definitely education. Yeah. I, I think that uh, we have to destigmatize um, going to therapy seeking help. Because mm-hmm. right? we go to the doctor mm-hmm. when we hurt our arm. A lot of people say that, right? But mm-hmm. no one's like, oh, it's okay to go see a therapist mm-hmm. or a psychiatrist if you're having mental health issues. Um, so instead of um, focus, you know, we're trying to um, change that mindset and provide education, let people know what it's really like. Because most people come in nervous. They don't know what to expect. But once you're like, um, you know, my approach is like, oh, what's... Um, what do you understand therapy to me? What do you want to get out of this process? And then I give them a little education. This is what you can expect. And they relax a little more. Okay. I think losing the fear of that. Because if, if you see it, the medical model as well as the mental health model, like people don't go to the doctor because they don't want to know if something's wrong with them. <laughs> people don't go to therapy because yeah. they don't want the therapist to tell them there's something wrong. But we, as immigrants, we feel, we always think of the worst that can happen. Oh my God. Because we have, we're, we're yes. in survival mode, right? Mm-hmm. We're thinking, if, if I go there and something bad happens, because bad things have happened intergenerationally. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, we want to look at that and just lose the fear. Mm-hmm. It's better to know... Mm-hmm what we've got to work with you know just like medical issues you know Mm -hmm. if you have a broken bone you don't avoid the emergency room or the doctor and deal with the arm that's broken you want to go heal it you know yeah and i think the more we talk about it the less scary it will become okay there's this kid book um but it's about a dragon and the more the that you avoid that dragon the bigger it gets yeah. The, the more you avoid the issue, the bigger the issue gets. Yeah. But if we talk about it more and we uh, normalize or make it commonplace, like it's okay, you know, like other um, Latinx people um, go and talk to someone, it's okay to do this. And um, if we bring education into the communities, mm-hmm. it'll be more common to go and seek help. Yeah, and also understanding, yeah, where that comes yeah. from. Where does that fear come from? Because we come, I'm from Honduras, right? Mm-hmm. We have two places for mental health, manicomios. And, uh, and that's how the community sees you as crazy. Mm-hmm. Estás loco, estás mal. But that's not how it works in this country. We have levels of mm-hmm. care in, within mental health. Mm-hmm. There's not just if you're really bad mental health-wise, you're going to be thrown into a manicomio. Mm-hmm. It's not that anymore, not here. But we come with those thoughts from our countries because that's what happens there. So for those of you who may not speak Spanish, the word manicomio was mentioned a bit, and it means asylum. I would like to point out, though, B, that what they discuss about our immigrant parents bringing along their intergenerational trauma set happy with me because I resonated with that a bit. I mean, growing up, I felt like if anything I felt that was other than normal or if I expressed sadness, my parents would compare what they went through to minimize what I was going through. So Mm. tying it back to intergenerational trauma, as Anna mentioned, they didn't know how to process and deal with their own personal strife. And it was projected onto me and it was looked down upon when I expressed any distress. Girl, I can completely relate. But you know that I first got to throw a shout out to my fellow Catracha. Oh, 
<laughs> but uh, no, I set out therapy for the first time on my own accord as an adult. And when I decided to share this with my parents, they both individually came out with came at me with responses like, "Hija, ¿qué te pasa? ¿Por qué estás bien? ¿Te pasa algo?" Of like, course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, instead of seeing it through the lens of this is self care, this is good for personal growth, they just go back to what they know. Exactly. So. I agree with Evelyn and Anna. It's up to us to change those narratives and help jumpstart those conversations in order to help guide this paradigm shift and destigmatize within our own circles. Yeah, unfortunately, I see that happen uh, with parents. Like, well, I don't know why she's anxious, why they have depression. Like, I've been through worse. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I had this life. And or there's also this fear. Like, is my kid gonna go on medication? But you're not, you don't go on medication right away. There has to be an assessment for that, and people are not aware of the process. And it sounds a lot like minimizing. So some parents are like, well, you know, the, it's not that big of a deal. So they can pray about it. That, that's the oh. big pray about <laughs> it, spiritual. Yeah. Um, you know, because we have this mindset, or the, um, especially Latinx, uh, uh, traditional families have the mindset that like uh, you give it to God, yeah. And then maybe you go to a therapist. It's like a weakness. You're being weak. If you go to God, like you'll be stronger. You can handle it. Like admitting that you are going through some sort of pain is admitting that you're weak. Mm-hmm. And that's cultural. That's not biblical, mm-hmm. because pain is biblical. You know, they're suffering throughout the Bible. But that's, you know, for Christian uh, people, that's, it's just a misinterpretation of that. But, yeah, I mean, medication is a fear. Having records taken off you because of immigration issues or because they feel like you're going to be tagged somehow with the government, with an agency. So just not understanding how the systems work, which is, you know... Yeah, very valid fears, but it's just having community understand that that's not how it works, you know? <laughs> yeah. So where do you see are like the, lar- the hardest mental health issues hitting Latinx households today? I think a lot of uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. If you think about how even we come to another country as immigrants, you want that better life because my life is horrible. Right, mm-hmm. that's the assumption of people when you know coming here, bringing their children here. So having this hope helps them survive that. But when we're here, mm-hmm. we carry parents and our grandparents' parents, and we carry all the baggage of community violence in our countries. Sexual abuse is high in our countries. Um, physical abuse, spanking, hitting, and. Mm-hmm you know, really difficult, you know, very harsh ways of punishing children. Uh, So we carry those things. And not every Latin household has those things, but we um, we do see a lot of that in our practices because we see the people who are most in pain. We don't see every Latinx household, but what we see are the ones that need it the most. Right. So want to make that distinction. It's yeah. not everyone. Mm-hmm. Whereas Anna, um, you see it more with um, the your adult clients, right? Yeah. The ones that just got here. Exactly. Whereas I work more with their children. And so what I see a lot in the children of immigrants is that anxiety and depression. As you had stated before, the, the minimizing of 
uh, emotions and pain because they've gone through worse. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you see that uh, intergenerational trauma because now they're, you know, the parents are passing on their fears, their anxieties, and the kids are taking that on. And then there's this whole, like, the kids are trying to make sense of their identities. Like, I'm, I'm American, but I'm also from my parents' country. And how do you navigate that? And, and it becomes very difficult. And then the parents, what, and speaking from my experience, some of them are a little controlling because they're trying to keep some control, some tie to their country. So you're coming here, you don't speak the language, and you use your children to translate for you. Mm. And now you're like setting your kid in this parental role, uh, but somehow you still have to be in control. Mm -hmm. And that can create conflict in the parent and child relationship, which I, um, mm. from my perspective, you know, my work with the children, I, I see a lot of miscommunication, problems with connecting with the parents and parents wanting the kids to be more mature whereas in this culture like um the kids can be kids and then it's like understanding that uh certain types of punishment are not legal here so it just takes a lot of education and the parents are still getting uh acculturated to uh american culture it just creates a lot of conflict in the family and mm -hmm. um dysfunction in the roles that each members play Yeah. And what you um, see from the parents' perspective is that they, their method of avoidance and trauma research, avoidance is a coping strategy to deal with trauma. So you see a lot of parent, you know, new, new immigrants working 12 hours a day, two jobs, three jobs, many things, many projects. So they're not emotionally available to their children that are born here. So their avoidance that they're doing because they're coping by working which is why we, we're, we're called the hardworking population. We, we, we're very hard workers as immigrants, but that's also a response to wanting to cope with that trauma because there's workaholism, avoidance, is, that's a, a type of coping. So, that yeah. or the muelas de hambre, right? You die of that's hunger true. because like, you, you just <laughs> yeah. got here. You're not yeah. going to have the best paying job. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, I heard often, like, oh, I work so right. much because I have to provide. So you're in survival mode yeah. as a parent when mm -hmm. you first get mm -hmm. here and you don't know the language and you don't know how to deal with things. So you're for survival more free, maybe years, 30 yeah. years, 20 years. And, you know, yeah. the kids that are born here suffer those consequences. Yeah. And the, The emotion and neglect in itself can create trauma, too. Because now the kids are like, oh, what am I doing? I'm taking care of myself. I don't know how to respond to stressors going on in my environment. And my caregiver, my parent, who's supposed to provide a sense of safety, isn't around. Mm -hmm. Girl, as my little sister likes to say, Lord. Let's take a moment to take a breath after this one. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but this one hit a little too close to home. Mm, girl. When I first heard this, I could not stop praising the words these women were saying. It was like they saw me growing up, dude. Evelyn mentioned parents using their kids to translate and essentially putting kids in the parental role. Girl, preach. Talk about hitting the nail on the head, B. I mean, they put some words to things that I could never really explain before, mainly around parents' inability to find a coping strategy to deal with their own trauma. 
dealing with parents living in survival mode after coming into this country and just looking at work, 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 bringing money to the table and Mm -hmm. therapy being seen as a weakness culturally. Yeah, you know, I've thought about all these things in passing from time to time and us being friends for so long, we've surely had these conversations about our upbringing and how it shaped who we are now. But I've always chalked it up to being cultural and something that comes with being a child of immigrant parents. Pero coño, the light that is being shed right now, I feel like I'm in a therapy session. Lord knows how you must have felt. Girl, you have no idea. How do you address machismo in your line of work? And are there any tools or techniques to overcome this barrier to machismo and just toxic masculinity in general? Yeah, I mean... The concept of machismo, it's controversial because in the literature, uh, there is a negative, you know, people can internalize, men can inter- and women can internalize machismo as a negative thing, mm-hmm. which is the usual thing that you hear a lot about. Men are dominant, controlling, and they, they, you do what they say. But there's a positive identity within machismo, you know, of el caballero, you know, mm. the man who is a provider, the man who takes care of his family, the man who's a leader in his community. Uh, so we want in, in toxic masculinity. The, there are men that are, have only learned that other way. Mm-hmm. The vi- when violence is involved within the culture and poverty and violence correlate. They're, they're, they coexist. But when you have you you help men switch that pretty much switch, mm-hmm. get them to see that being a man can also be what they are made to do a, a, a provider taking care of being a leader without violence because mm-hmm. the, the real thing that they have to see is is there violence involved in how I am as a man mm-hmm. or not you know it's just like women can be machista too yeah you know for sure <laughs> for sure so it's about teaching um the the, the positives of machismo mm-hmm. you can be a, a, a un caballero and that's, that just brings a whole nother nice picture to who you are as a man, rather than being a macho, you know, yeah. by, you know, uh, whistling and sexually harassing women, telling them they're beautiful, their butt's nice on the street. <laughs> that's not being a macho. That's being, uh, you're harassing people. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're teaching boys and men that you can be a gentleman, and that's, positive then you you help them see another view of themselves that they haven't explored there are a lot of gender-based uh interventions that are used in latin america to address specifically toxic masculinity you know and here too there's a lot of interventions here that work with that machismo caballerismo area yeah it's definitely interesting. Yeah, I've never heard it put that way of like mm-hmm. taking the good, the good parts mm-hmm. of machismo. Yeah, you know, and teaching yeah. that. Yeah, it's just like Marianismo. It's a female gender role. Mm-hmm. So females, are, we are taught to be the ones that keep the family together, spiritually stronger than men, um, the ones that pass down all of the the the, cost, the customs and traditions. The responsible one to do all those things, and. We're not the only responsible people to do that. The men can do that too, you know. So why are we taking on so much? Why can't we be the women that are, yeah, they're strong, but then you need a partner that's equally strong as you are. Mm-hmm. You don't have to bear it all. You don't have to quiet it all. Yeah. You can be a, a woman. And um, that's actually part of 
my research, um, looking at Marianismo and intimate partner violence. There's a um, distinction between like being a Marianista woman, which is a woman who believes that she has to keep the family united, spiritual stronger, hold of everything, allow the men to do whatever they want to do, follow the men's orders, be submissive, and intimate partner violence. I'm exploring that relationship. I don't think that there's, you know, we'll see what happens in the results, but mm-hmm. that's, that's what I'm exploring. Because uh, there's a, a misconception out there that if you are a Marianista, there's violence. But I also believe that violence alone can ruin any culture, mm-hmm. in any level, in any, anywhere in the right. country. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, that the social economic status has a lot to do with that. Exactly. Right? Risk factors, yeah. Right, in our education, whereas um, you might see more violence uh, and poverty, and, yeah. and poverty mm-hmm. or uh, where one partner might have more say over the other. And um, But then whereas if you share the same um, level of education, if there's more respect, then exactly. I think we change that lens instead of saying like oh men are keeping us down or he's trying to hurt me uh you're looking at through the lenses what do you bring into this relationship what's your strength Mm -hmm. um just speaking from a heterosexual point of view i was like what does my partner bring to the table that i can't provide and what do i bring so when you think about it that way, we're, we're in the same eco field because we're complementing each other. I'm doing something for him that he can't do. He's doing something for me that I can't do. And, and no one's better than the other. And um, maybe one makes a little bit more money, but um, you get to choose what role you play. But you have to have that conversation, I think, like, mm-hmm. um, and respect, communication. Mm-hmm. Whoa, 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 whoa. Cuando te digo that this episode has blown my mind, my mind is blown. Not only have Anna and Evelyn framed things in ways that I have never been able to and make me feel seen, but they hit me with Marianismo. Girl, did you know what that was before this episode? No, I hadn't. And I had also never heard machismo or at least aspects of machismo being framed in a positive way. I honestly never thought that it could be. I know, right? But they totally shifted my paradigm. And we as Latin America haven't had a, a chance to chill out and breathe, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> it's true. Because when we were colonized, that there's uh, Martin Baró talks about, it's a psychologist in Latin America, very famous, to talks about colonialism and what that did to us as a culture, where violence was introduced in a very heavy manner. So violence results in more violence. So there's a theory where a man, the only control he ever had was in his household. He didn't have control in the community anymore. He didn't have control over his name, his people's religion, his anything. So he took it out on his people in the home. And those, those, that's intergenerational trauma. It, it comes from all of those experiences of violence. We've been in survival mode for years. Years and years. So it's looking, understanding where that comes from and how we can make an impact to stop that and to make it better. Thank you all so much for listening into our ninth episode. Yes. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Anna and Evelyn for providing all of this insight. And if you're in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area and are seeking a Latinx therapist, check out www.anasierracounseling.com. 
tell your abuelitos, abuelas, tios, tias, anyone that could benefit. This episode was brought to you by our producer extraordinaire, Maria Wirtel. Music is by First World. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Estoyaki Podcast and listen to us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Don't forget to share, rate, and review us. Besitos. Ciao.